You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. I think it goes back to early 2020. And we here in Colorado and in the U.S. were hearing a lot about um, the virus that would come to be called SARS-CoV-2 and the disease that would come to be called COVID-19, just tearing through health systems in Asia and in Europe, in particular Italy and and China, and entire health systems basically collapsing. And um, we had a meeting in my department, which is microbiology, immunology, and pathology with it was organized by our infectious disease research uh, and response network leader, um, Dr. Candace Mathiason, um, to basically ask, you know, what is it that we at CSU can do? And I had been talking to a former student of mine, Nathan Gruba, who's now at Yale, about what they were doing with, with surveillance um, in, in what they were trying to set up uh, in Connecticut. And... Um, it, it just occurred to me, you know, like the, we, we need to be able to protect our healthcare system and um, that, that we ought to be screening workers in that health system, be they ER docs, uh, staff, I, I don't know who, but that, that seemed to me like just something that we needed to do. And so at this meeting, um, I had a slide or something. We kind of went around the table and... Um, and I, I sort of said, well, you know, we, we are facing a collapse of our health system here if we don't get our act together. And uh, Candy said, oh, I know exactly who you need to talk to. You need to get in touch with Nicole Earhart. And I said, great. And I, I didn't know Nicole. I was vaguely aware of the Center for Healthy Aging. But, you know, my I'm out at Foothills and we're kind of isolated out there in, in a good way in some instances. But... Also, you know, like I, I, a lot of a lot of that happens on campus, I'm not aware of. Um, and so she connected us, and Nicole and I had a call, and we just kind of hit it off. And I mean, we're sort of started from there, and uh, and it just turned out to be um, a really gratifying project. And I'll have a chance to tell a bit kind of more about my side of it, I guess, later on. I want to take you back to May of 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic was still in its beginnings. There was no vaccine, and researchers were still learning a lot about how the virus spread in the population. At the time, the Center for Healthy Aging had just been awarded a $4.3 million grant from the state of Colorado to expand testing and monitor COVID-19 in residents and staff at skilled nursing facilities. Today on the show, we have Dr. Greg Ebel, a professor and director of the Center for Vector-Borne Infectious Diseases at CSU, who was instrumental in helping develop the center's testing protocol early in the pandemic. We'll hear about his lab's history of surveillance and prevention strategies for other infectious diseases. And we'll discuss what's next. What is CSU's role in preparing for future outbreaks or emerging virus threats? I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, 
And this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So I'll tell you again for like the fourth time, thank you, Greg, for coming and being (laughs) on our show on such short notice. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So we've heard a lot from Nicole on her perspective about Mm. working in in the COVID pandemic because of being a veterinarian and the veterinarian approach when there's an infectious outbreak in animals in a herd is surveillance. Like you get ahead Mm. of it and you find out where it originated and kind of put a stop to it as soon as you can. I understand you have done surveillance testing for a whole different kind of of infectious pandemic um, outbreaks. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so so surveillance or kind of monitoring is is um, is kind of central to what uh, is done in in my field, which is arbovirology. And so I, in the rest of my, in the non SARS part of my life, I'm I'm what's called an arbovirologist. So what that means is that I study um, viruses that are transmitted by arthropods. So R, the R in arbo means arthropod, and the bo means born. So it's arthropod-borne viruses. It's shortened to the word arbovirus. And so um, we do a lot of what's called surveillance testing of mosquitoes and ticks, and um, it's, it's key to understanding how we are going to respond to, um, to disease threats. And that can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Um, but typically what's done is, you know, we, we collect mosquitoes and uh, we then test them for the virus that we're worried about or that we think is, is likely to be a problem. So here in northern Colorado, the principal arbovirus threat is West Nile virus. And uh, part of what my lab does every summer is um, test mosquito pools for Fort Collins and Loveland and Berthoud and parts of Boulder uh, for the presence of West Nile virus. And then we provide that data on a weekly basis to um, decision makers at the county, city level that decide whether or not to undertake efforts to control mosquitoes. And that sometimes involves uh, spraying for mosquitoes. That there's, There are other, other ways that they um, intervene also. They do uh, public outreach. and But that all is kind of comes from a place of, of this is what's happening in your neighborhood at this particular point, and so we need to we need to take action. So so anyway, that's that's a that's a big part of, of what we do. So how does that fit into um, the Center for Healthy Aging? Well, you probably remember that in early 2020 there was a panic about do we have enough testing kits and what's the right assay to use and nobody could get the right kind of reagents to, to do COVID testing. And as kind of like a lab person who spent a large part of my career kind of coming up with ways to do molecular testing for viruses, that was kind of wild to me that this is just a PCR at this. I, that's probably a technical term. It, it's a, you know, it's it's just an assay that detects the viral, the viral genetic material, and yeah. we do those in the lab all the time for all different types of viruses. And so, within a couple of 
you know, weeks, we were able to, you know, take published assays and adapt them for use in our lab and show that they worked. And we were kind of ready to go. And that doesn't mean that we weren't subject to the same kind of supply chain issues. I remember we had a really hard time getting nasal swabs, which you need to take the samples for, for COVID testing. But, um, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, that's kind of where, you know, because we'd done West Nile virus testing and research again, as a part of what my lab does for many years, it was pretty easy for us to generate what was needed to start testing. And then we just kind of relied on, on Nicole Earhart here at the Center for Healthy Aging to, you know, make the connections. And, um, you know, I mean, she's just so effective at getting people on board with, um, with what, you know, what needed to be done. Yeah. Um, she was able to get a, a letter from Governor Paulus and make, you know, use connections that she already had with the nursing home community here. And so we started, I think it was in May. I don't, I don't remember exactly when it was that we started it was the, about May. Yeah, it yeah. was about May. We started doing the testing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it was it was pretty amazing. Um, it was a whirlwind time for all of us. It was it was amazing. Yeah, the <laughs> the first week. So we were what we were doing. Maybe I haven't explained this well enough. What we were doing was was testing workers at at skilled nursing facilities, yeah. long term care facilities, um, and. They were they were tested by you know the the what the the way that it was set up was that on the on the way into work um, staff at the nursing homes and I say when I say nursing homes that's just because what I call them it means skilled nursing facilities long term care facilities whatever yeah um, would get swabbed and then we would pick up the the samples and bring them back to the lab and and test them and the idea is that you know if you can if you can get somebody who's on their way to work, but who's shedding virus, who maybe doesn't know that they're sick. Because at that point, it was just starting to become clear that you could be virus positive yeah. without being symptomatic, you know, sick as all get out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that asymptomatic people could have very high loads of virus in their noses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, so, so that, that was kind of part of the motivation. And then, you know, that first week of testing in May, we were shocked at some of these facilities, 30% of staff going in to take care on their way to work to take care of long-term care facility residents, people who are, have a lot of other problems and, um, are quite vulnerable. 30% of them were virus positive in their nose and not just you know what way we were doing a molecular test so we're not detecting by the test that we were doing the actual virus that was infectious we were just detecting its genetic material that's enough like you don't want that person to be going to work at your nursing home yeah. if that's the case but then um there was this other thing that wasn't quite clear is like to what extent does viral rna positivity in your nasopharynx correlate with the presence of infectious virus and so the other thing that we did in the lab was we took these nasal swabs, the, the the material from the nasal swab, and we we infected cells to see, you know, this is like a, a lab where you have like cells growing in essentially a petri dish, and um, of course this is all done in very high containment at specialized facilities that we have out at Foothills, and and some of these 
people, again, on their way into work, asymptomatic, showing no signs of disease, had extraordinarily high levels of infectious virus uh, in their samples. And that was just, you know, number one, eye-opening. Yeah. Number two, my God, terrifying. Yeah. Like, like, Mm -hmm. we also had, at that point, had started to see just, you know, COVID-19 just wiping out some of these long-term care facilities. And and so that precipitated a crisis, the, the type of which we were worried about. And it was part of the reason that we wanted to do the testing in the first place, because all of a sudden, a third of the staff at one of these places is no longer able to yeah. um, go to work. Uh, that was what that was what the protocol was. And so, yeah. But I think that, you know, overall, we did keep uh, a lot of. Uh, infectious individuals out of uh, vulnerable, yeah. you know, dangerous. So I think we did make those places safer. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, how do you go from, like, how quickly was the transition from, you know, in your lab, you're finding these staff members that have, you know, high viral loads. Is that information communicated to the nursing facility? Like, how quickly oh, yeah. was a protocol so developed? Really, really quickly. So I don't remember. You're talking about reporting? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how we would we, that at that point we were basically you know communicating v- almost in real time yeah but that first the first week that we were doing the testing I got a you know like a phone call or an email or a slack message or something from um, the person in my lab who was doing the testing as a, a postdoc um, Dr. Kendra Quick um, and and it was like this is, un- it's all, it was almost unbelievable. And so we were kind of like, okay, are you really sure about that? And I got calls from the CSU vice president for research, Alan Rudolph, mm-hmm. saying, are you really sure about this? Do you, you know, do, do you need to check this, Greg? <laughs> are you really sure? Because this is going to precipitate a problem. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, we, so we had to be very careful. And, you know, you don't, the cost of being wrong, I think, was like, very high oh, and yeah. nobody wants to be wrong about something like that and so but yeah we weren't wrong we were we were yeah. unfortunately kind of spot on yeah with it. yeah unfortunately yeah so knowing that how did it progress like what when you started out seeing these really high viral loads yeah. i assume you would see outbreaks every few weeks or there was an ongoing outbreak what was it just like throughout the whole the whole experience well it settled down fairly quickly um you know because there's only so many people that can you know get infected but there's remember there remember there's no vaccine we didn't know the extent that people could be reinfected um there were some just hellacious outbreaks in a few of the facilities and then others there would be you know like a few here and there um the thing with the project was that it grew really rapidly. And so the testing for the first, I don't remember if it was like an eight week or a 10 week period or something. We, that we, and then we extended the study, I think once or twice, but eventually, you know, it outgrew my lab. I'm, I'm just a guy with a, like a research lab at Foothills and we do, you know, we're, we're set up to do testing a few hundred samples a week, but, but not the scale that was really needed. And so we were very, uh, very lucky that we in, Fort Collins are very lucky that we have um, at CSU the Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, and so kind of what my the role of my lab 
became was to kind of carry this project while the VDL, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, which is much better set up to run large numbers of samples. They're staffed better. They have more of the right types of equipment. They're used to doing this kind of thing, and they needed, but but they needed a certification, which my lab did not have, and we were mm-hmm. never going to get. We're never going to be a um, a CLIA a lab. CLIA lab right? yeah. That's just like I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. Um, but they will, and so luckily the the director of that lab, uh, Christy Pavilonia, is you know another like just amazing resource that that we're in. You know, we're incredibly lucky to have her and the VDL here, and she was able to stand up her lab and as soon as she did that it made all kinds of sense for almost all of the testing to go there because they just they can do it. and then we start and then the project kind of started testing um residents as well as yeah staff um and it just became a part of this like i guess statewide nationwide far larger than like you know my little research lab can yeah <laughs> but that little research yeah. lab like helped develop this mitigation strategy that we did make it all the way up to the CDC and people in Washington yeah. <laughs> on these phone calls yeah. about how do you handle, yeah. you know, outbreaks in a nursing facility. And Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's an interesting conversation that happened at the time, too, about like, what's the role of, of academic labs in public health response? And I think that, you know, I don't know that we ever like really landed on a particularly satisfying um, answer to that. You know, my view is that, you know, it, labs like mine have you know, lots of expertise and lots of extremely committed, hardworking, idealistic students, uh, postdoctoral researchers who are willing to give up everything else that they're doing when they see a need. And so, and they're really smart and they're really good at what they do. Like they really know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mentioned Kendra already, uh, Emily Galishote is a, um, a postdoc, Dr. Dr. Galisho, it's a, a postdoc in my lab. And I mean, she and Kendra and, you know, research techs, Michael Young, grad students, uh, Emily Fitzmeyer have all, they just set down everything else and did this. And so there's that energy. And like I said, they really know what they're doing. Yeah. So what's the role for them in this type of emergency? And I think we kind of by example sort of answered that question that, you know, there's that capacity and I don't, I don't know that, well, what you'd hope would be that as a nation, we would decide that maintaining capacity to respond to pandemics, epidemics, outbreaks, new disease threats, because it's not like SARS-CoV-2 is like the first or only one that's yeah, coming. Yeah, or the last one. Yeah, yeah so, um, but but historically that has not happened. You know, we kind of devote a lot of resources to these things and then uh, invariably they the, the threat wanes or we become sort of acclimated to just dealing with them. Yep. And then and then we sort of take a few steps backwards. Um, and I've, I've seen that just in my career. You know, that's happened with, West Nile virus and uh, chikungunya virus and SARS-CoV-1 and uh, Zika virus and SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, there's, I I would say that SARS-CoV-2 has been kind of uniquely politicized and uniquely kind of a wake-up call to people. But, you know, I would, you know, 
think it's important to remember that, you know, this is not the first virus ever to emerge that we've sort of viewed as a national emergency that's kind of caused people to marshal their resources. I mean, West Nile virus was, I, I was, you know, a newly minted PhD when West Nile virus was making its first incursions into North America. And, um, yeah. you know, so I've seen the, I've seen, I've seen, I've kind of <laughs> been to various versions of this rodeo before, so. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, well, we've heard lots of stories and seen lots of news headlines in the last like couple years of uh, even at CSU, we're getting all kinds of grant money to be involved in emerging viruses and pandemic response for the future. And I know you're involved in a little bit of that. So can you, you tell us a little bit about your, your role with center for vector borne diseases and, you know, emerging virus threats for the future? I guess I would preface what I'll tell you about by by saying that, um, you know, here on planet Earth, we have some really big, hard problems that are not in any way straightforward to address. And I alluded earlier to the fact that we've kind of seen this thing over and over and over and over and over again, where we have a virus that either we knew about a little bit, but we didn't worry too much about because it was just something that was seen in the 30s in Kenya or in Uganda or someplace else. Um, But then, you know, they're like these little flickers of, oh, weird, there's Zika virus on um, Yap Island in the Indian Ocean or wherever Yap Island is. Or there's, you know... um, why in the world is West Nile virus in Israel in geese this year? That's kind of bizarre. That's kind of weird. Huh. That's funny. And then a couple of years later or a couple of months later, oh my goodness, West Nile virus is killing birds at the Bronx Zoo. Or that's kind of weird. Zika's not on Yap anymore. We're seeing this in Brazil. Is this, is, what's going on here? Or, you know, why is chikungunya virus in Central America? Um, yeah. This is symptomatic of a much larger, much deeper, much more complicated set of problems that, you know, as society, as humanity, as, you know, people who live here on planet Earth, we got to figure out how to handle those things. And so what are we doing to kind of address that? As I said, they're very large, very hard problems. And it's not like one person or one group no. of people sitting in a lab is going to have all the answers because the, the, the questions go beyond. While they certainly encompass aspects of biology and ecology, they are also involved with things like economics and global trade and how do we raise food to feed our population and how do we, what do we do with our garbage and yeah. um, how do we... Uh, how do we view our role as okay citizens of the U.S. in the broader world? Because because the way that we do that alters land use, not just here in the U.S., but in very far flung places. And so, so I think that what you know what we're facing, you know, is like quite challenging. Yeah. So what does somebody like me do? What what or what do groups like mine? Um, that I that I that I work with at the Center for Vector-Borne Infections. He's like, what do we what do we do? I mean, it's like it's overwhelming, right? Yeah. So, um, so there's a couple things. I mean, we work on what we can work on. 
So what we do in, um, in my lab, and I'll just take a few seconds to like sort of tell you about that, but it's really like, I, I think that it's not appropriate to just sort of think about like what one person does. Cause it, it can't yeah. be like a single, a single person. Yeah. Um, also as an aside, why it's so exciting to get to work with the center for healthy aging. Cause it's like, why are we not working together all the time? But, um, this is a great chance for, you know, this SARS was, was really eye opening and that we were able to kind of join forces. Yeah. So anyway, um, in addition to the problems that I said earlier about how do we raise food, how do we manage populations, how do we manage trade, you know, we have this other problem <laughs> of um, changing the climate. And that is changing the distribution of arthropod vectors, and it changes the nature of the interaction of arboviruses with those vectors because... Um, the temperature at which an arthropod lives influences the rate at which viruses can replicate within their tissues and changes their propensity for these uh, these arthropods to be good at transmitting the virus. And so um, what we've been interested in and what we're working on, so my lab has been interested in virus evolution for many, many years. And um, we've looked over the years at kind of how viruses that are maintained in these funny, complicated transmission cycles, for example, West Nile virus that's has to be switching back and forth every time between mosquitoes and birds and mosquitoes and birds. You know, how do each of those animals, mosquitoes versus birds, influence the way that natural selection acts on the virus population or how do, how are variants favored in one host versus another? So what we're interested in now, which is sort of like continuing that line of research forward, is um, how do... Um, how does a changing climate change virus evolutionary dynamics within mosquitoes principally because mosquitoes aren't able other than by flying to warmer or cooler places to regulate their temperature. They're not like we are. They're not like birds are where we have like a constant temperature that changes only by a couple of, de couple of degrees. In mosquitoes, viruses are facing, you know, temperatures that can range by 10, you know, 20, 30, 40 degrees Fahrenheit if we're talking in a, in a 24 hour period. So, yeah. so it's hard to imagine that that doesn't, and you know, there's that scale of variation, but then there's also this kind of gradual increase in temperature. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're looking at now. And that's relevant to, um, that's relevant to this kind of like pandemic emerging infectious disease thrust that CSU is taking. Yeah. Um, because, we move mosquitoes and their viruses into new environments all the time. Um, and mosquitoes are expanding their range. And so they are encountering, you know, as part of global climate change, but also just as a part of changes in where they are, uh, different, um, different temperature regimes. And so we're, we're looking at that right now. That's, that's like kind of one thing. Um, the other thing that we're doing, um, again, this is something that my lab has been involved with, um, others, others as well is trying to develop uh, minimally invasive methods for, um, for surveillance. Um, and so one thought that we had many years ago, and this has been a collaboration with a lot of different people, I can't possibly name them all, is that mosquitoes, in, in particular mosquitoes that inhabit uh, resource-poor parts of the world, um, are, we basically have started to view them as little uh, autonomous blood sampling robots because that's what they do and they bite people all the time and it's their mosquitoes are incredibly good at what they do and so um, 
So our idea is that, uh, you know, mosquitoes that have recently fed on people have information about the health of that person, in particular, whether they are infected with viruses, um, viruses that we might be interested in. Um, And I'm not talking only about mosquito-borne viruses. I'm talking about things like hepatitis C virus or, um, you know, what have you. Any virus that's associated with the blood, the mosquitoes are potentially sampling as they are feeding on blood. And so what we've done is... We've done this now in a few different localities in West Africa, and we're just wrapping up um, some studies where we've worked in Central America with collaborators um, in Guatemala. Um, The idea is that if you go in the morning, you can sample mosquitoes that have recently fed fed on blood because mosquitoes, after they feed, uh, their their body mass increases by like, I don't don't remember the the number of times, but they're suddenly got this big distended abdomen full of blood and that's like hard for them to fly with that there. And they're not good flyers to begin with. So they they fly to the nearest surface and they just sit there facing the ceiling and they they start to digest their blood meal and they kind of remove the, the biggest parts of the moisture. So at that time, they're not good at getting away. And so you can go there with a big mosquito vacuum. Um, <laughs> that's called an insectazooka and you <laughs> slurp them off the wall and then you've got this, you know, little cup of blood fed mosquitoes and you can then take the mosquitoes and squash the blood out of their abdomens onto something to preserve the blood. And then we're trying to use that for surveillance. That's really fascinating. The idea being, yeah, that like, you know, by the time something hits Facebook or Twitter or the news, it's probably too late. Yeah. The idea is that if you could, you could potentially, you know, in a setting where you were worried about something going to emerge, either because it did in the recent past or the distant past, or there was some kind of like something funny happening in the clinic, you could use this to sort of say, I wonder, you know, I wonder if, you know, we're seeing something new. And then there's a lot of molecular biology and a lot of other methods that go into um, testing the, the mosquito blood for things like, yeah, like I said, hepatitis C, or there's a, we find a bunch of weird, and we've also learned a lot by doing that about, you know, obscure insect specific viruses that are related to human pathogens and things. So it's been a really interesting wow. project. Yeah. So, so there's that. So those are, those are things that are kind of in, in my realm, but, but a lot of us out at the center for vector borne infectious diseases are doing, you know, different, different studies and, involved in different capacities to, you know, contribute to pandemic response also. Well, I know I've been talking to you for like 50 minutes straight. I want to make sure I get this last question in. Um, The one that I brought up earlier, which is what is a major challenge in your field that you believe must be identified to realize real increases in health span or healthy aging? Yeah. So what my field is, is virology and in, particular it's arbovirology and so um and i'll answer this as a person who's working in northern colorado who is involved in west nile virus service so um so what i think we need to understand better is the role of um viruses in um cognitive decline as as we age so many of us here are exposed to west nile virus during the summer and every, you know, every summer there's another chance, right? So, um, what we don't really, what we think we're, what we're starting to understand about these viruses, they, the, traditionally it's thought that, you know, you're infected, either you get really sick and die or you get really sick and you recover partly, or you never get sick and, 
or you just get a little bit sick, right? There's the spectrum of illness. What we're starting to learn, I think, is that um, across that spectrum of acute illness, there can be, uh, you know, brain damage. Like people who are asymptomatic, if you do imaging studies of their brains, you can see uh, effects of virus infections. And so I think that we don't understand nearly enough about these supposedly acute viral insults, um, even that are clinically inapparent in the context of, of aging. Mm-hmm. And that's important for West Nile virus, but there's a whole lot of other you know, viruses that can cause uh, you know, neurological problems. And, um, and we just don't know enough about long-term consequences of that. And I think we might, that might change how we think about risk mm-hmm. um, of West Nile virus and the risk posed by West Nile virus uh, over time. Yeah. Well, then, thank you for coming today and talking with us about this. Yeah, I, really I am glad to finally hear your perspective. Yeah. I mean, I've heard your name for three years. And <laughs> <laughs> I've sent you emails, but I've never met you in person. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you for having me. It's really fun to get to talk about this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.